Today is our fifth look at the charismatic movement. We are con- confronting one of the most deceptive false teachings that operates within the evangelical church. Uh, the charismatic movement, if, uh, if you go by the numbers, applies to over 500 million people in the world today. Uh, and in its unhealthy expressions, you get things like these gigantic false gospel movements like the prosperity gospel as well as televangelists who trick viewers to, you know, to send money to them uh, by virtue of faith in order to receive some kind of blessing in return. However, the term charismatic uh, really just, it, 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 typically just, it typically just means that someone believes that the, uh, that the, the supernatural spiritual gifts, the, the really mysterious ones in the Bible, uh, particularly miracles, healings, prophecy, and speaking in tongues, um, the term charismatic kind of applies to a person who believes that those gifts continue to operate today in the same or at least a, a very close similar fashion as to yesteryear in the times of the Bible. That in and of itself is not a heresy. Heresy means that it's a false gospel. If you believe that, you end up not being saved because it's a, it's a damning uh, lie. It's a deception. So believing that the spiritual gifts still operate today in the same fashion as, uh, as in the Bible times is not in and of itself a heresy. Uh, being right or wrong on that issue is not a marker of saving faith. Um, you, can, you can be right or wrong on various topics. You can be right or wrong on the roles of men and women in the church. You can be right or wrong on whether or not creation uh, took six literal days. You can, uh, uh, you can be right or wrong on, uh, on the, the nature of, of how God predestined and how people operate with their free agency. And those are definitely huge topics that affect church governance or your understanding of, of God's will and your, your maneuvering through it, or your understanding of the origin of life and sin and death and Satan, etc. So it's not like these things are unimportant. You can, uh, you can have doctrines that, uh, that are very, very important, and yet they aren't matters of salvation. They don't determine whether or not you're a Christian. So what I want to just restate again up front is uh, I want to recognize that the charismatic movement can lead at times to serious heresy, but it isn't always heresy. What we're dealing with uh, is is an issue of, uh, of the nature of the spiritual gifts that kind of move in a direction where people can go deeper into uh, into into bad stuff and start to create uh, false ideas and false teaching, or they might just kind of stay on that edge and uh, and not really veer into uh, the territory of heresy. So we want to deal with this issue at full force, but we regard many who are deceived by the charismatic movement to still be our brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing in salvation, destined for the same eternal de- uh, destiny that we ourselves are grafted into by God's grace. Right. So the intent here is to confront the false teaching in hopes to rescue, not condemn, but to rescue believers who might have been misled by this, okay? Everything charismatics believe starts in the book of Acts. Specifically, four moments in the book of Acts. Uh, That would be chapters 2, 8, 10, and 19. This is where the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts comes to believers uh, in a supernatural display 
And you'll see that right up front in chapter two, there'll be this mighty rushing wind. There'll be uh, flames that kind of rest on people. uh, And then there'll be the speaking in tongues event. And it's from here that the charismatics teach that this is normative. That this is the, the, the way that it defines the normal experience on how it's supposed to be. It's normative. This is the new normal. This is how it's supposed to be. And if they're right then the book of Acts is this model for the church and for, for the Christian and for Christian faith today. But if they're wrong, then the charismatic theology will crumble uh, on, on that premise that the book of Acts is normative for today. So we're going to take it in short, uh, seven short movements. We're going to kind of move at brisk pace on this. Seven movements to guide our thoughts. First, we're going to talk about how to read the book of Acts. We're going to get into that issue of hermeneutics on how, uh, how to take God at his word. Okay? So we're going to talk about how to read the book of Acts. Second, we're going to talk about the charismatic movement's doctrine of sub- subsequence. That's, uh, we're really just going to spend a couple minutes on that because it's a single idea, and then we're going to move on. But that's the, the main point that we're going to be looking at and inspect on whether or not that's true. After that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, which is Pentecost. Then we'll look at Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Then we'll look at Acts chapter 10 regarding this guy named Cornelius. And then we'll look at Acts chapter 19, which is, you might call just some Jewish leftovers. Okay? And then we'll have a conclusion. I don't know how I'll transition into that conclusion. If I can't think of anything, I'll just say in conclusion. Okay? Okay. Let's start with how to read the book of Acts. Um, Charismatics view the book of Acts as normative for all Christians in all ages, right? When you read the book of Acts, that's how it's supposed to be for everybody at all times. Uh, And I think that this is something that we need to to expose right up front as a misunderstanding of the genre, right? What what they see is that the, the Holy Spirit works in Acts in a certain way. And so that's how all Christians should expect them to act in all ages. And that is a huge error. We looked last week at who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit, uh, what the Holy Spirit does, how to follow him, how to follow the Holy Spirit's lead. And today is kind of a follow-up to that because, uh, you know, if you misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, then you read Acts and then you kind of like turn it into something else. And so this is more a follow-up to clean up some, some, some fallout from a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the book of Acts, the most important principle to apply in order to avoid charismatic error is the literal principle, the literal principle, which is, uh, you know, you take something at its natural meaning, right? Unless it gives you a reason to, to understand it figuratively, allegorically, symbolically, you just take it as it is. You take it literally. You take it as its literary genre, right? And we already know how to do that. When you hear the sentence, Indians kill bears, if that's on the cover of National Geographic, that's an article of Indians killing bears. But if it's on the, the front cover of a sports page, you take that very differently. You, you see two different sports teams, and someone was, was victorious over another in a game. So you already know how to apply certain interpretive rules to the same sentence. You could say, Mary had a little lamb. And that is a nursery rhyme to us. So we think it's fiction, but it tells a story. Mary had a little lamb. Or we could be having a dinner conversation and I could say you had a little steak, he had a little chicken, Mary had a little lamb. 
And that same sentence can be interpreted completely differently given the context. So you take the literal principle into mind. When something's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. A simile, a simile, you know, et cetera, right? So consider the genre then of the book of Acts. History. This is a historical record. It's an historical record of how the early church came about and how it transitioned from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. History tells us how events did happen. History does not tell us how events should happen. Right? When you read a history book, it tells you what did happen. It doesn't tell you what should happen. When you read about the Holocaust in World War II, that's what did happen. That's not what should happen. Just because something happens in a story doesn't mean we're supposed to do the exact same thing. We don't read the, the history of the United States and see how we started as a nation and think that's how we should do things today, right? In terms of uh, robbing land from native inhabitants, genocide, war, slavery, right? That's what did happen. That's not what should happen. Description is not the same thing as prescription, it's a true story, but that's not what should be the normal case for everything. What we do is, uh, you know, when you look at the New Testament, you go to the epistles, you go to the letters uh, for instruction. We look at Acts in order to see the, the history, the, the, the journal of what took place, but it's an historical narrative. It's a true story. It, it tells us what did happen, not what should happen. There were no church buildings in Acts uh, in Acts throughout the whole book. There were no church buildings. Is that the absolute? Should that be how it is today? There were no choirs and no worship bands. There were no Sunday school teachers in the book of Acts. Evangelists like Philip, he just teleported to different locations. Is that how we should do it today? If so, why is the charismatic movement trying to raise money to buy private jets? Do we execute people like Ananias in Acts chapter 5? Do we execute people who lied about how much offering they give? Something to think about. <laughs> uh, should we take Nazarite vows like Paul did? Or should we, uh, should we go to Jerusalem for Passover like Paul did? That's in the book of Acts. And you just can't do that with the book of Acts. You, you can't just take the moments in history and go, see, that's how it's supposed to be for everyone today. You can't do that. It's, it's description. It's not prescription, right? It's how it did happen, not how it should happen. The book of Acts records the earliest days of the church. It really only records like this 30-year span. And it's the church transitioning from the Old Testament to the New. It's written by Dr. Luke. He's a physician. He's a doctor, right? Uh, and it starts 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, uh, really around this moment, a, a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. And it ends 30 years later at the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey, taking him to Rome. Transitions are seen from the beginning to the end of the book. The Old Testament law of Judaism gets replaced by the gospel there's a transition from externally observing the ceremonial laws to internally being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The transi th that transition is why the apostles don't force the Jews to suddenly throw out all their, their Old Testament Jewish scripture lifestyles. 
But instead, you know, there, there's instruction throughout the New Testament, like if someone still holds to Sabbaths or still holds to new moons or still uh, stays away from certain types of meat, go ahead and accommodate to the, that brother's weaker conscience. He hasn't like fully made the, the move over yet. There's transition from meeting in synagogues to meeting in people's homes in order to do worship. Today, we have church buildings. There's transition from a Jewish population of Christians, because the entire uh, church started off Jewish, to becoming a fully multi-ethnic population for God's people. The Apostle Paul himself is clearly a Christian by faith, but he still has Jewish roots, and he still holds on to some of those Jewish roots, as you see in chapters 18 and 21, with the Nazarite vows and going to Jerusalem for Passover, etc. The healings and the miracles in the book of Acts were not common, normal things. Right? Just because we read that in, in a certain chapter, we don't go, that's how it's supposed to be today. That was extraordinary back at that time even. The, the, those uh, supernatural events accompanied apostles and the apostles' close companions. Really this community of about maybe 120, at most 500. If you really, really try to include everybody you can, 500 would be the most that you can consider the apostolic community. I think it's closer to 120. But the healings and miracles always accompanied the apostles and their close companions. Uh, they were exceptional events. They weren't normal. They had specific purposes, and their frequency decreases dramatically from chapter 1 of the book of Acts to the last chapter of the book of Acts. At, at the opening of the book, there's a, a flurry of miraculous events, and then toward the end, it's, it's just like absent. So even throughout the book, the, the, the course of the book, miracles and healings and things like that are not normative. The transitions exhibited in the book of Acts are extraordinary, and get this, they are never to be repeated. Right? They're never to be repeated. This is a transition from Judaism to Christianity, from Israel to the church. That transition is one and done. It does not need to be repeated. The only ideas in Acts that are normative are the ones that are explicitly taught so elsewhere in Scripture, in the areas of Scripture that prescribe and instruct and command and teach. But this book just tells you what did happen, not what should happen, okay? All right, that's how you read the book of Acts, to understand it's a story, and just because something happens in a story doesn't mean that's how everyone's supposed to live from now on. And you would, you would naturally use that, that uh, clear assumption and understanding for any story that someone tells. Now, let's talk about the charismatic doctrine of subsequence, okay? This is the, the big idea. The charismatic movement believes in this one major idea called the doctrine of subsequence. And uh, what this says is you get saved at some point, right? You become a Christian. You get saved. And then at some point subsequent to that, sometime later on, sometime subsequent, Hopefully you'll get this next level experience that they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's this higher level spiritual supernatural event. The baptism of the Holy Spirit as they see it uh, is this higher experience where you get into a deeper relationship with God and now you can, uh, you can know him in ways that you couldn't otherwise. And you can experience blessings in ways that you couldn't otherwise. And you can wield certain powers that you couldn't otherwise. And uh, you'll know when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit 
because you'll start speaking in tongues. They say that that is the sign that accompanies it. That's the sign, that's the proof. Uh, and, uh, and to whom does this happen? Well, they say that it doesn't happen to just anyone and you don't just wait around for it to happen to you by luck. It's not a lottery. You have to eagerly seek after it, plead for it, pray for it, or it won't happen. You have to seek for the gift of tongues. You have to, uh, you have to eagerly desire that the, the Holy Spirit would baptize you into this brand new, higher level experience of, of Christian faith, as they think it is. They derive this idea uh, really from Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and they say that Acts chapters 8, 10, and 19 support this idea. Uh, so we're going to look at the four moments in the book of Acts where the Charismatics derive their theology, starting in Acts chapter 2. So let's look at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, that's Pentecost, okay? This is about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's one of those three Jewish holidays where all the Jewish uh, men, at least, usually if they could take their families, that'd be great, but at least all the Jewish men who are able need to go back to Jerusalem in order to worship, so it's kind of like they had three retreats every year, and that retreat always happened at the capital city. Jesus taught his disciples multiple times that after he was gone, the Holy Spirit would come. He even said so in the previous chapter. Let me show you Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Okay, this was in the first chapter of Acts, verse 8. Jesus says, but t- talking to, his, uh, to the apostolic community, to his apostles, he says, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So keep that, that verse in mind, okay? The, like the sequence of it, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. All right, now, if you've got your Bibles, we, we should be in Acts chapter two. Let's start in verse one. Okay, this is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And this, by the way, is in Jerusalem. Uh, they're, all, they're all in one place. Uh, verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the word tongues is also the same word as languages. So some people want to translate it as tongues. Some people want to translate it as languages. We'll get to that on a different week, okay? There are thousands of Jews sitting around. They're, uh, they're seeing this event, okay? You, you have the apostolic community, which is uh, 120 people right now from Acts chapter 1. There are 120 that were kind of hanging out together and stuff. They all of a sudden are experiencing... A supernatural moment. There's a mighty rushing wind, and then it looks like flames of fire are resting on their heads, and then they all start speaking in tongues. Thousands of Jews are seeing this, okay? There are spectators everywhere because all Jews have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So there are Jews from all these different countries who, like, speak different languages and things. They're all there. Some of them are looking at the apostles and their friends. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. What's going on? God is moving. Others are looking at them saying they're drunk. They're crazy. This is chaos. And so the apostle Peter stands up in the midst of all this going on, and he, he kind of quiets everyone down, and then he starts preaching to them. Okay, And this is what he says in verse 38. Jump to verse 38. It says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what he says? This is after this big sermon, and he brings it down to the focal point, to your repentance of your sins and your trust in Jesus Christ. And if that happens, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay. Does this teach the doctrine of subsequence? Let's look at the 120 people. If you notice, that 120 people, they were saved previously because they walked with Jesus. They already believed in Jesus. That's why they're waiting around and praying together and all that stuff right now. So they've, they've, they're already believers. They're already Christians. They already believe in Jesus. And then finally at this event on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come to them. So the Holy Spirit has come at a subsequent time, sometime after their salvation. They were saved first, and then they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. But of course they re- received the Holy Spirit later, right? They can't receive the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit arrives. The Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost. That's when Jesus sends the Spirit. So they can't receive the Holy Spirit prior to that. And the 3,000 people that just got saved right there Right? They got saved. They all got the Holy Spirit the moment they were saved, but no remark is given about them having fire on their heads or speaking in tongues or any mighty rushing wind. No remark is given about that. It says they received the word and they were baptized, meaning they were dunked in water. 3,000 of them uh, came to faith that way. So the apostles and their friends were saved but, uh, and were baptized with the Holy Spirit later because that's when the Holy Spirit arrived, but the 3,000 they were saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit in the same exact moment, instantaneously. Right? They received the Holy Spirit, but there's no mention of them speaking in tongues. Most charismatics will say that, uh, that you know, the, the apostles, well, yeah, the apostles had the Holy Spirit in like a partial limited form. And every believer gets the Holy Spirit in some partial limited form. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this full experience of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's a, a next level, higher level, better experience, more qualitative and more quantitative. So the, there's this, this push where they say like, yes, yes, every believer has the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets the Holy Spirit at, uh, at salvation in some limited partial way. But you got to seek after the more full, greater experience. So according to them, the apostles were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but they weren't baptized with him yet. You know, it's like they were sprinkled, but they weren't yet dunked. So they point to John chapter 20 to, point, uh, to uh, make this point. Verse 21. Uh, this is where Jesus says to the apostles, he said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So this definitely sounds like the apostles just got the Holy Spirit right then and there uh, before Pentecost what was that? I think what he's saying there is a pledge, a promise. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So right there, Jesus indicates that the Holy Spirit has not yet been given to them. 
They're still waiting. Jesus breathed on them, but the Holy Spirit uh, hasn't yet been given. Even in Acts chapter 1, the verse that we saw before, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So has the Holy Spirit come yet? No. In uh, John chapter 7, verse 39, it says, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when is the Holy Spirit given? Well, what needs to happen first? Jesus has to be glorified. That means he has to be resurrected and he has to ascend into heaven. Right? And that hasn't happened yet, so the Spirit has not yet been given. That verse tells us that the Holy Spirit is given after Jesus is glorified, after he ascends to heaven, not before, not in part. Okay? Even in uh, John chapter 16, verse 7, uh, Jesus makes this remark. He says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus has to go away for the Holy Spirit to come. So this whole thing where Jesus talks to the disciples and he says, you know, receive now the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them, right? What was that? Did they receive the Holy Spirit or not? Because it seems like Jesus has to be glorified. He has to go away in order for the Holy Spirit to be given. They have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in power. So what is that? What, what is it when he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them? Well, I think that what he's saying there is a pledge a promise. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that that is something that is a, like there's a guarantee that this is going to happen. Like he, he, he might as well have said, wait for the Holy Spirit. But he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Like keep your hands open so that, that you're ready to, to receive him when he arrives. Receive the Holy Spirit. And he blows on, he blows on them as a demonstration, as an object lesson. The word spirit, pneuma, in the Greek is also the same word as wind, and breath. So when you say the breath of God, that's also the spirit of God, same thing. A holy wind is a holy spirit. It'd be the same word. So when he says, receive the Holy Spirit and then breathes on them, that's, a, that's like an object lesson. He's giving this, uh, this very uh, demonstrative action to say the spirit will be, will be given to you. You will receive him. He's teaching them uh, that they need the Holy Spirit and he's pledging and promising that they will receive it. And, you know, he's a fan of object lessons. When he's like, my body and my blood are broken and poured out for you, then he makes you take bread and eat it and go, okay, that's the body. Uh, And then you, you take wine and you drink it, you go, that's the blood. And he makes you kind of experience this thing. He's a fan of these object lessons. When he goes, you are now submerged in me. In the Holy Spirit, you're submerged into everybody else that belongs to me. Then he makes people stand in a line in a pool of water and then submerges them as baptism. And he says, that's what it is, that you are dunked into all that that God is. He's a fan of these object lessons. When he says, receive the Holy Spirit, he breathes on them. And they understand, okay, the the Spirit is supposed to be given to me. And so it's a pledge. They wait for it. And then Jesus has to be glorified and he has to go away for the helper to come and the Holy Spirit to be given to them in power. So Acts chapter two does not teach subsequence. There's no indication that the 3,000 people who came to faith spoke in tongues. Uh, They certainly weren't seeking and eagerly praying and pleading for anything. 
That wasn't happening. The 120 people, they were having a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1, and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, but there wasn't this like, we can't wait for this next level experience. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't something uh, as frantic as that. Acts chapter 8, and this takes place in Samaria. Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Um, this, this chapter is used as like a proof text by the Charismatics to say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this next level event after salvation. Uh, a guy named Philip, he goes to Samaria to the Samaritan people, um, and Samaritan means you're half Jewish, half Gentile. Okay, it's this people group that was half Jewish, half Gentile. Uh, he goes to these people in Samaria, and uh, he preaches to that people group, and they, they come to faith. They come to saving faith, right? Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Right? The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this looks like it proves the point that the charismatic movement proposes. These people in Samaria were saved, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. And then at a later or at a subsequent event, they're, uh, they're given the Holy Spirit and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, um, this is true. Just like in Acts chapter 2, there are people who were previously saved and then later on received the Holy Spirit. But uh, that's not really the, the working paradigm for the rest of the book of Acts. That's true in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8. That's not really the case anywhere else. Subsequence isn't normative. It had a special purpose. And, and let's ask why the Holy Spirit arrives later. With Pentecost, it's easy to explain. Well, the reason why the Holy Spirit arrived later than their salvation was because that was the first time he arrives, right? So yeah, people got saved and a bunch of people get saved, 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 and then eventually the Holy Spirit arrives. So yeah, it was a subsequent event for them. After that, shouldn't everyone just get the Holy Spirit right when they become a Christian? Yes, it's supposed to be that way. Why didn't the Samaritans? How come they got the Holy Spirit late? How come it was a subsequent event for them? Well, it's actually pretty easy to, uh, to unpack this, okay? The Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile people, and there was this big racial tension between them. Uh, it was extremely hostile uh, because Samaritans were viewed as disgraceful traitors, right? The Jews had this huge thing about being Jewish because it was us against the world, Right? It's, uh, it's a people group that's been the target of genocide so many times throughout history. And so to, to compromise and to then go and breed with, other, uh, with people of the nations, the Gentiles, the enemies, was seen as, uh, as this, this grievous thing. You, you just couldn't do that. Samaria was, uh, was so hated. It's in between north and south Israel. Samaria's kind of in the middle because Israel's kind of like a crescent moon shape. Um, Samaria's in the middle, but when Jews went from north to south, they just walked around Samaria. They didn't walk through it. They're like, I don't even want to touch the dirt of the Samaritans. They, they hated them that much. Uh, Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Samaritans worshipped elsewhere. The, you know, the two were related, competing, neighboring religions. The reason this story is chronicled here in Luke 
is to show that the Samaritans are the first non-Jewish people included in salvation. Do you remember? Jesus says, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's capital city. That's where Jesus' crucifixion took place. In Jerusalem, then Judea, that's the county in which Jerusalem resides. So that's kind of where Pentecost took place. He goes, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria to the end of the earth, right? And this is the next move. This is now the Samaritans coming to faith, Right? This, is, this is a big deal because it's the first non-Jewish people included in salvation. This has never really been considered. You had proselyte Jews before, but this is a whole different thing. We're seeing the Holy Spirit come in power. The apostles and friends are, are witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. When this happens, uh, up until this point, 100% of the church is made up of Jewish people, the apostles and friends, and 3,000 other Jews. Right? If Philip came to Samaria, they all become Christians, they all like believe the gospel. Then he goes back to Jerusalem and he's like, yeah, the Samaritans believe the gospel. They're saved too. How many people in Jerusalem would have believed that? How many of them would have reacted, oh, great, how do you know? And Philip goes, I told them the gospel and they said amen, right? How many of them would be like the Samaritans? No way, there's no way. 3,000 people are in the church and they've been a Christian for like a few weeks, how spiritually mature are they? How theologically informed are they? Right? For them, it's like, what are you talking about? They're not even Jewish. They're worse than the Gentiles. They're Samaritans. Those aren't God's people. Those are barely people at all. They, they called them dogs. Jews are God's people. Samaritans are outcasts. It'd be very hard to accept that. And then what would happen is if Philip just said, no, trust me, they're, they're a church. The Jews in Jerusalem would be like, no, they're not. And then now the Samaritans are just like, whatever, we'll do our own thing with the church. And now you have two competing neighboring religions. And that would be no good. So who goes into the matter? You know, the, Philip comes back. He's like, they came to faith. And the leaders of the church are like, wait, what? Is this kosher? And so they sent the two most prominent apostles, Peter and John, right? They send the two biggest names that served under Jesus, Peter and John. Uh, and these guys, Peter and John knew that Jesus loved the Samaritans. They saw what happened with the woman at the well at, uh, in John chapter four. He, uh, they know that he reaches out to the Samaritans when he wants to. So they don't dismiss this matter, but they need to investigate because they're not sure. They're, uh, they're open but cautious, okay? Uh, so when these apostles go to, to Samaria, they meet these Samaritan believers, and then they pray for them. And yeah, the Samaritans were already Christians, they're already believers and stuff, but uh, you know, the, the apostles, they come, they, they pray for them, and they, like, they're accepting them. They're saying, like, you are saved by the name of Jesus. And as they're doing that, as they're praying cautiously and with like questions in their minds, as they do that, the Holy Spirit falls upon those Samaritans and they start to have this incredible experience. It says that they received the Holy Spirit. Something happened where the apostles can affirm that, yes, they received the Holy Spirit. So I think it, it stands to reason that uh, the, the same thing that happened at Pentecost happened at the Samaritans. I don't think that's unreasonable to assume. 
But now you have very, uh, two very important benefits put into place if, uh, if that's true. If what happened at Pentecost, that supernatural, crazy, mighty rushing wind, the flames speaking in tongues, if that happened, let's say, with the Samaritans, you have these two benefits. First, the two biggest apostles will come back to Jerusalem and confirm, yeah, we are absolutely 100% sure, without a doubt, that these people are saved and they have the Holy Spirit. How do we know? The exact same thing that happened at Pentecost happened to them. There's no doubt. And we'll be like, well, did you see it with your eyes? And they say, yeah, 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 we saw it. Flames on their heads. Did you hear it with your ears? Yeah, we heard it, speaking in tongues. Did you feel it? Yeah, mighty rushing wind. All of it, it's all there. And they say, okay, well, we, now we can't, we can't deny it. The Samaritans are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That'd be this huge event for the Jews. Second is that the Samaritans will recognize that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until apostles came and affirmed them. So Samaritans can't like raise up their own teachers and be like, well, we think differently. We disagree because our culture says this and you guys are old fashioned and we've just learned. Instead, they go, no, it's the apostles. The, the blessing of God comes with the apostles and the anointing of God comes with the apostles. So what the apostles teach, the apostles doctrine, namely scripture, that is where truth is. That's where the divine authority and blessing is. So for the Samaritans, it very much affirms and confirms that the apostolic authority is divine authority. So don't hijack Acts chapter 8 and try to say that it teaches subsequence of the Holy Spirit. The only reason why the Holy Spirit comes a little bit later than their salvation is to give this moment to affirm to the Jewish church, to the Jewish believers, that the Samaritans are also now believers. That God is doing something new. He's making one new man, a new kind of man, Ephesians 2. From Jew and Gentile or whatever, he's making a whole different kind of person, not defined by Jew, not defined by Gentile, not even defined by Samaritan. That's why the Holy Spirit delayed. It was to make a moment of undeniable confirmation by the witness of two, uh, two apostles, two of the biggest apostles. They can confirm it as witnesses. The big lesson of Acts chapter eight is that there weren't two churches, one in Jerusalem and one in Samaria. It wasn't that. There was just one church. Both received the same thing. Okay? Acts chapter 10, then we get to this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a non-Jewish person. He's a Gentile, okay? Acts chapter 10 takes the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the end of the earth, meaning to the non-Jewish nations. The salvation of Gentiles is expressed here in Acts chapter 10. Uh, in this chapter, God gives Peter a vision, okay? Uh, it's, it's my favorite vision in the Bible, where Peter sees a whole bunch of animals, and, and God says, just hey, get up, kill them, and eat them. And Peter's like, I can't do that. They're unclean. And God's like, no, 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 no. Get up, kill them, and eat them. He doesn't even say cook them. Just kill them and eat them, right? Um, Peter gives, gets this vision where he, it's okay to eat this meat, this meat that would be re regarded as unclean if, if you were to read like Leviticus 11 on dietary laws. Peter didn't want to eat the meat because he grew up being Jewish all his life. He was taught by the scriptures, you're not allowed to eat those animals. That's like, that's awful. You know, it's, it's sinful. It's unclean, ceremonially unclean. God won't accept you if, you if you eat those animals. Things like that. So he was taught that. 
But God says in chapter 10, verse 15, he says, what God has made clean, do not call common or do not call unclean. This happens three times. So three times Peter gets this vision. Three times God says, don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. Maybe it used to be unclean, but if God made something from unclean to clean, don't treat it like it's still unclean. So after getting that lesson three times, uh, Peter's just sitting there. He's, He's confused about it, but then all of a sudden, some Gentile men show up, and they're sent by a Gentile centurion, that's a high-ranking soldier, okay? Uh, they're sent by this high-ranking soldier uh, named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, a high-ranking soldier, and yet he is a God-fearing man. Like, he has this profound respect and arguably a sincere faith in the God of Israel, in Yahweh God, even though he wasn't Jewish, right? He was a God-fearing man. And the Jews knew that about him, uh, so he had a really great relationship with the Jews. They held him in high esteem, unlike how they regarded pretty much all the other Gentiles. This guy was special. The Jews were like, this guy, he's, he's really a good man. He believes in Yahweh God. Now, the, the men that were sent by Cornelius, uh, you know, they, they, they tell Peter, they're like, Okay, so we work for this guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion. He sent us here because he was visited by a holy angel. And the holy angel said to ask you, Peter, to come talk to him. He needs to hear what you have to say. So Peter's like, this is bizarre, but I'll look into it because, you know, life is just unpredictable at this point for Peter, right? Um, Now, keep in mind, Peter is one of the apostles that saw with his own eyes that the Samaritans were saved. He saw that, so he's like, anything's possible now. Whatever Jewish prejudice he might have had was already shaken by that Samaritan event, and now three times by this vision where God's saying, if, if something's unclean, but I say it's clean, it's clean. End of story. So he's like, what is this? What's happening? If God was saying that non-Jewish people were clean, well, then Peter better not get in the way so is god going to save gentiles samaritans one can make the case well samaritans were at least 50 percent jewish right they're they're half jewish but cornelius this guy was zero jewish right he was 100 percent not jewish that's how the jews would think about it like why would you even talk to a gentile like never go full gentile so, so the, Peter's like, I don't know what to do about this. The Jews never went to Gentiles. They didn't, they didn't e- even eat food that was cooked by Gentiles. They didn't use utensils touched by Gentiles. They didn't enter houses owned by Gentiles, etc. All the laws are there in Leviticus, right? But since Peter saw the Samaritans got saved and he had these visions from God, he preached the gospel to Cornelius. He goes, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household, so, you know, the servants and all that stuff. So a bunch of Gentiles are there. He preaches the gospel to them. What happens? Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, meaning the Jewish believers, 
who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter's response shows a full admission that the Gentiles were saved and included just like the Jews and the Samaritans. They should be baptized with water just like they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, same way it happened at Pentecost. Right? They need to have that object lesson to confirm the, uh, the reality of the spiritual event. Note here, there is no subsequence. Right? The Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles at the moment of salvation. Same event. And it happened because there was an apostle there to confirm the new understanding for the church that God is saving Gentiles. And Peter goes back to, uh, to the church in Jerusalem. He goes back to give a report in the next chapter, in chapter 11. And he admits his reluctance, his uncertainty, his hesitance, and yet he yielded. So he, he reports. This is what he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Right? Same thing happened for the Gentiles as it did for us. Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? Peter says they got the same thing we got. And you can be sure that some people would at least object. Like, well, why didn't you stop them? They're Gentiles. Some people would protest. But then Peter's like, look, if that's what God is doing, who am I to stop him? Right? God is saving Gentiles. I'm not going to get in his way. I'm not going to tell him he can't do that. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent because it seems like they were protesting or speaking at least. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, well then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was the point of these stories, right? The point was not some next level supernatural spiritual experience that gives you a deeper, more meaningful uh, communing relationship with God. It is not that. It is that salvation is reaching peoples that have never been reached before. That God is doing something amazing and new. The glory of the Lord is falling down in Jerusalem and then moving out to the nations. That's what it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some next level subsequent event. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is salvation. You are now immersed, submerged, dunked into the presence and power of God. That was the point. God's plan of salvation was unfolding, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now jump over to Acts chapter 19 and you have to deal with some Jewish leftovers, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 19 is this one final group that gets saved. They're like these guys that, like they just kind of missed everything, right? They were in... Israel at some point, and they met John the Baptist. John said, repent, you have to repent if you want to be saved. And they go, okay, we repent. And then they get baptized by John the Baptist. Awesome. And then they go back home and they live like somewhere around Ephesus. They're just like in a different country away from Israel. So then Jesus happens, but they're like not there. They didn't know anything like that. So they're like these, they're like these 12 guys who were like, yeah, John the Baptist, he told us to repent. So we repent. 
We're repenters. And then that's kind of it, though. Is that enough to be saved? No, not really. You have to like repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. That's kind of a, a significant portion to the gospel. So these guys, they repented of their sins. They're like, yeah, I need a savior, dot, dot, dot. And that's where their faith is. Are they saved? Ah, halfway, right? 50% of the download is done, but there's still more to go. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, the Apostle Paul, passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, verse four. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, right? To believe in the Messiah, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? So Paul kind of gives them the the remaining 50% that they need, right? Uh, Were they believers? Kind of, halfway. They got the message of repentance from sin because of John the Baptist, and now they needed to have faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the one that's greater than John the Baptist, right? And Paul finished that out for them. He explained that the Holy Spirit now indwells believers. Like the, these guys are like, we've never even heard of a Holy Spirit. Now they know who the Holy Spirit is, that's, that he's in the whole Old Testament, he's all over the Old Testament. But they're like, we don't know about this thing where the Holy Spirit's supposed to indwell or whatever. Like whatever you're talking about, we've never heard of. And then Paul's like, all right, well, you know, let me... Let me just show you what this is. Verse six, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about 12 men in all. So right here, this is just some cleanup, right? These are these 12 believers who were still kind of in like Old Testament mode. They didn't fully upgrade to the latest patch, right? They didn't get the whole gospel. They got the repentance thing. That's like the the pre-patch. They didn't get the rest of the thing, okay? But they finally get the update. They get the full update to the gospel uh, that started with repentance and what, uh, what they learned from John the Baptist and they get the rest of it, believe in Jesus. And they go, okay, we believe in Jesus. And then all of a sudden they receive the Holy Spirit. Because they believed in Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit. Because they believed in Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit. These guys weren't seeking the Holy Spirit. They weren't pleading or praying. They're like, we didn't even know we we're supposed to think about that. Right? They weren't seeking or pleading or praying, eagerly seeking like that. They were just chilling. They didn't even find Paul. Paul found them. Right? They were really just minding their own business. These guys were not missing some information you know, about, uh, about the Holy Spirit. They were missing information about Jesus. And that's what they needed. So Paul preaches to them the whole gospel about Jesus. He preaches about Jesus to them, not the Holy Spirit. And they believe in Jesus. That's why they get the Spirit. That's how it works. Paul doesn't say, well, now that you believe in Jesus, now you need to eagerly seek some next level spiritual supernatural event to really become fully immersed in God. He he doesn't say that. He says, you believe in Jesus. You are now fully accepted and fully uh, have full access to God because the Holy Spirit is in you. I think you get it. In conclusion, the events of Acts show that it's the church coming into being. It's a transitional period, Old Testament to New Testament, from law to gospel, from Israel to church. 
for something to be normative for all believers today, it would have to be something that was normative for all believers back then. But there is no normative pattern in Acts for receiving the Holy Spirit. Attended by tongues or seeking for these experiences, it's not theologically responsible to claim that this has to be the pattern for churches today. The Holy Spirit does come subsequently, subsequent to salvation. He does, he does come subsequent to salvation in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8. But in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19, he comes at the moment of salvation. So subsequence is not normative. Tongues are mentioned in chapters 2 and 10 and 19. But tongues is not explicitly mentioned in, in chapter 8, so you can't say with certainty, dogmatically, that uh, tongues is normative. In fact, 3,000 people come to faith in Acts chapter 2. There's no mention of them speaking in tongues. Who else gets saved in the book of Acts and, uh, and doesn't have any kind of supernatural event accompanying it? Who else gets saved? Let's see, I don't know, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, right? Uh, Dionysius, Damaris, Crispus, Apollos, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, the Galatians, the Phrygians, the Achaeans, the Macedonians, the Ephesians, etc. They all got saved. No supernatural event. At no point in the book of Acts has anyone ever recorded eagerly seeking, uh, pleading for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And no one's eagerly seeking to speak in tongues or anything like that. And my, my one uh, maybe exception to that would be there is one guy who seeks it. In Acts chapter 8, his name is Simon the Magician. And Peter's like, basically he says, go to hell. Because he's like, you have no idea what you're saying. Like you, you're going to try to, you're, you're after the power, you're not after the Savior. So even if you try to insist that everyone who was saved in Acts spoke in tongues, even when it doesn't mention it, you just assume it's there. If you try to insist that, then you have to include the other parts of that experience, right? If you go, yeah, tongues, everyone who gets saved speaks in tongues. If you say that, you have to throw in everything else. Everything else has to be normative. So every time you get saved, there has to be a rushing wind. And there has to be flames resting on the heads. Why, why don't you include that? What would be the reason to, uh, to take only one of the, of the three supernatural phenomena? You know, because you know, like the one that you chose, everyone has to speak in tongues. That's the only one that a person can fake. The flame and the wind, that's a lot harder. Has that happened to any of the charismatics in this room or at any of the charismatic churches we came from? No, why not? Because that's not normative for the church today. We don't teach the apostles' experiences. We experience the apostles' teaching. Did I confuse you? Our call is not to replicate the stuff that the apostles experienced. Our call is to live out what the apostles taught us in Scripture. There is no biblical support that an event like Pentecost is ever going to happen again we're never commanded in the Bible to seek something like that. And sometimes we have songs that, that, that say like, Holy Spirit, come in power. Holy Spirit, fall on us. He did. At salvation. 
And I don't think it's a problem to sing those songs, you know, like you can sing that. And it's like a poetic way of saying like, Holy Spirit, like be here, lead us, uh, like help us to notice you. You know, it's, it's fine. You can art, like artistically, you can still express yourself that way. I don't think we need to put anyone in jail for that. But don't think that you need some next level supernatural event. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. The moment you're saved, the moment you turn to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside you. So eagerly waiting for the Holy Spirit to give you some next level spiritual experience detracts from the singular focus on Jesus. The outpouring of the Spirit is a completed prophecy that ushered in the church age in which all believers are given the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Don't think that you're missing out on something. Acts is just the record of the church in its beginning stages. It is not a description or a prescription of church today. It's just a description of how church started up, how the engine got started. It's not how the church operates for all all ages. And you know that. You already know that. You already know that. In Acts chapter 1, the church picks a new leader by casting lots. Is that how we do it today? No. No? No. In Acts chapter 2, the believers, they all sell their, position, their, their possessions and give it to the church leaders. <laughs> we'll see whether or not you think Acts is normative there. Why is the church not meeting in the temple at Jerusalem at the hour of prayer described for the Jews? I mean, that happens a lot in Acts. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 21. Seems to be normative. Why aren't we forming synagogues and worshiping there? Because that seems to be normative. Acts chapter 13, 14, 17, 18, 19. Why don't we meet every day in houses and have communion, you know, bread and wine, every day of the week like they did in Acts chapter 2? Why aren't all conversions like uh, the Apostle Paul on Damascus, you know, blinding light out of heaven, voice of Jesus, saying like, hey, stop, stop fighting against me. Why aren't all conversions like that? And then like, Apostle Paul gets blinded for, for days and then this guy, Ananias, has to show up and, and be like, God sent me to you. How come no one's conversion is like that? Because the book of Acts is not normative. That's just something that happens in chapter nine. It tells you what did happen, not what should happen. Throughout the book of Acts, like you see in chapter 6, you see the church is run by the apostles. Today, why is it run by elders and overseers? Why does the New Testament move us in that direction in 1 Timothy? Because Acts is not normative. If, if only parts of Acts is normative, if you go, oh, well, okay, not all of Acts is normative, only parts of Acts is normative, which ones? And what are the rules to determine that? There aren't any. Acts is not a blueprint for church today. It's a record of how God's people went from outward observance of law to indwelling Holy Spirit. You don't have to seek anything. If you, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus above all else, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. If there's one thing to seek after, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew six thirty three. You don't have to seek 
the Holy Spirit. You understand that, right? You already have the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, full presence of God, full access to God. In fact, to every believer, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, all believers, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God is not holding back. God didn't give you 50% of himself and then wait for you to seek for more. He gave you all of him. All of him is available to you. It starts in his word. You read it, you pray it, you obey it, and his spirit helps you do that. Everything about who the spirit is, what the spirit does, and how to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit is there in last week's message. You can go reference that, catch up on that. That needs to be there. And I get it. I get like, you know, well, everybody's wondering at some point, all of you were wondering, isn't there a verse that says eagerly desire the greater gifts? Yes, I'll get to that. I know you're wondering that. I know. We're all wondering that. That's something that we all have to ask. It's the right thing to, to ask, to fact check and you know, make sure we've covered all our bases. Yes, that's there. We'll get to it. Just relax. I should relax. Sorry. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, Old Testament leftovers, anybody. That's the message of the book of Acts. This is the new era, the new, the new dispensation, dare I say. When God pours out his spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile, it persists from the day of Pentecost all the way till the day that Israel repents and is saved and Jesus returns. Until then, don't think you have to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You already have it. You already have him. So focus on the person of Jesus. Focus on the cross on which he died. Focus on the kingdom that he'll bring as all of that is taught in his word. Focus on his word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, you can live that out. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we stand amazed at your saving grace, at the power of your gospel, at your generosity to give yourself fully to anyone who repents of his or her sins and trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're glad that that's not just some initiatory experience and then we have to seek something bigger. We're glad that, that Christendom is not split into some poverty faith level and then some elite faith level. We're glad to know, Lord, that everyone who believes in Jesus has the full presence of Jesus in him by the, by the indwelling spirit, full access to you, God, because of the Holy Spirit. And when we read the book of Acts, God, we hope that we don't just start turning it into this, this crazy mystery religion of how we're gonna get some other next level 
supernatural experience. Instead, show us the glory that you put in there by your intent to show us that the Holy Spirit was, was being given in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That salvation was moving from the Jewish people to the whole world. That people from every tribe and nation and tongue would be saved. That's how virtually all of us in this room have access to you now. And so we don't want to take the glory of your, your plan that's unfolded moving from Jerusalem to all the nations. We don't want to take that and turn it into something else. We want to stand in awe that you, the God of Israel, have also brought in the Gentiles to make a new man, a new type of person. It's the person that's not defined by their ethnicity, color, whether they're male or female, whether they're rich or poor, free or slave. We're defined by Christ. We're not even defined by the Holy Spirit. We are defined by Christ and Christ alone. And so we pray, God, that we would focus on Christ, that Jesus would be the center of our hearts. We'd look at the cross and we'd wait for the kingdom. And we do it by trusting in his word. May we do that by the power of your spirit. Pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.